Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to focus on 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17 this morning. But I'm going to read the entire section to start us out. And the section runs from chapter 11 of verse 2 all the way through to the end of chapter 3. Again, I like to read this as a, a larger chunk because this is a letter. This would have been read in a single setting in one of the assemblies that, it, uh, that received it. And I, I would like to read this larger chunk for that reason, so we don't lose the forest for the trees. So let's begin in verse 11 of chapter 2. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil 
and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto, even baptism, doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've preserved the epistle of Peter for us. Thank you that you spoke through your servant Peter. And I pray that you would be with us this morning as we study his words. Uh, in portion, a portion of this epistle, I pray that you would speak to us uh, the message you would have. My words would be clear, and that I'd speak in the power of your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We're going to focus on verses 13 to 17 today, but I want to remind us of the context. Last time we met and spoke about 1 Peter, we talked about verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12, Peter beseeches us as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts and have honest behavior, honest conduct among the Gentiles. We talked about these Gentiles were just the surrounding unbelievers. And when the Gentiles behold these good works, they glorify God. So, so the, the overall thrust of this section is that we should perform good works so that these good works can be observed by the surrounding unbelievers and lead to God being glorified. Peter describes in this section at least three spheres, three primary spheres in which he gives examples of how we can perform good works. First, he talks about the civil sphere, and that's the sphere where citizens interact with other citizens. Um, next, he talks about the, the sphere of, of labor, masters and servants interacting with one another. And then he talks about the home, husbands and wives, spouses interacting with one another. God's ordained each of these spheres, these institutions, for our good, for the flourishing of humankind. And in so doing, he's also established principles by which each of these spheres should operate. There are hierarchies that must be observed. And if they're subverted, then the institution will suffer. If, if everyone can't be king, which we'll talk about today when we talk about the civil sphere, uh, everyone can't be master. There are masters and servants. In the home, not everyone's the husband. There are husbands and wives. God's established hierarchies and principles. This morning, I want to look at the, this sphere of civil government where we have the king and, and citizens. Um, 
In verse 13, here's the, the primary directive that Peter gives. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This word submit, it just means that we say, in this realm, I'm not the final authority. When we submit, we're not necessarily saying that the person who's making decisions uh, is making great decisions or better decisions than we would. Uh, we're not saying that the person who's making decisions is particularly competent. I mean, when we're thinking about civil government, we can think of our own civil government and the folks making decisions often don't have a high degree of competence because that's not how people are selected typically. What we're saying is I'm not the final authority. Um, we, are, we are deferring and, and ultimately this is a grace. God gives us this grace because we can't be experts in everything. We can't know everything. We can't know the best way to make every decision. And so God says in this sphere, you have to take, take a seat and let someone else make these decisions and you just submit. Submit and submission, this is a both behavior and attitude. Certainly we can obey the law that the government makes, um, but constantly speak evil of authorities, which God's word forbids. That would, be, that would be wrong. We can obey the law and we can have rebellious hearts. That would also be wrong. Uh, and so we have to think, how can we cultivate not only submissive behavior, obedience to the law, but also submissive hearts? How can we have an attitude of true heart submission uh, to the authorities? Because Peter doesn't say, just submit. He says, submit yourselves. You know, you are more than your behavior. You are your, your behavior as well as your, your heart, the heart behind your behavior. I think one way we can cultivate this attitude of submission is praying for authorities. We've, you'll see in your bulletin, that's a suggestion for family worship is to, is to maybe pray for some authorities this week with, with your children, with your family. First um, Timothy 2 Verse 1 through 4 exhorts us this way. He says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. If we're praying for these folks in leadership, then we will cultivate in ourselves hearts of, of submission. Because we need, to, we need to pray for true flourishing. We need to pray for the president. We need to pray for the legislature. We need to pray for the Supreme Court, for Governor DeWine. Uh, we, you don't have to become an expert in politics, but, but pray for what you know. Pray for wise leadership. And in so doing, if we're truly praying for the flourishing of these individuals and for their salvation, like Paul exhorts us here in Timothy, um, then that will cultivate in us a heart of submission. You know, this reminds me of, Megan and I just watched The Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know if you've seen The Fiddler on the Roof. It's a, a musical that's set in uh, Russia in the latter days of the Russian Empire and the, the Tsar of Russia persecuted the Jews and the, the musical is set in this Jewish community. And at one point in the movie, uh, well, it's a, it's a play originally, a musical, but in the, the movie we were watching, uh, one point a man rushes up to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? And the rabbi says, a blessing for the Tsar, of course. May God bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. <laughs> so, so, 
So even in praying, we could we can have uh, you know maybe unsubmissive hearts. So we should pray more than just imprecatory prayers on government, but we should truly pray for their their flourishing and and spiritual uh, well-being. That's the command to submit. If you're following along in your outline, the first blank is the command to submit. But next, I want to consider the object of our submission. It says here, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Uh, Depending on what translation you're reading from, ordinance here is sometimes translated institution. The underlying word really just means creation. It says, submit to every creation of man, every institution of man. Um, This obviously has direct applicability to laws created by men. And it has direct applicability to those who administer the laws. We're to submit to, it says, the king as the supreme authority. To governors, the governors were those subsidiary authorities that the Roman emperor would send out to enact his will. So we've got this idea of you're submitting to law, you're submitting to the, the supreme authority, the supreme source of the law, you're submitting to those who are implementing the law. Uh, but, but also, the form of government itself is an ordinance of man. There are different forms of government. There are empires, there are monarchies, there are republics, there are democracies. And the form of government is itself something that men created, and that is to also be submitted to. And so what this does is it makes our submission look a little bit different depending on where we live. God ordained human government for our good. It's easy to forget that, but it's, it's true. Verse 14 has an interesting couple of words. It says, so we're to submit, verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. So who does the him in verse 14 refer to? It is ambiguous. It could be saying, submit to the governors who are sent by him, by the king. The king is sending governors for this purpose, the punishment of evil and the praise of good. Or it could be referring to God himself. We're submitting for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or governors, as unto them, this group of governing individuals that are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers. This is ambiguous. Um, I think that there's a good argument to be made that this is referring to God, if, if for only that it says here that the governors, or at least the governors, are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. If we read this hymn as referring to the king, then we get caught up in this, this kind of a puzzle trying to figure out, well, what was the king's real intent in sending out these governors? Was he sending them to praise evil and to punish good, or to, uh, to pray, punish evil and to praise good or not? And is our obedience, our submission conditioned on that? It seems very complicated. But we know for sure from other passages that that God does ordain government. Romans 13 says, For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So whatever the powers, the king, the governor, these powers are put in place by God. They are sent um, for our good. Turn over to uh, to John 19 and keep your finger in John 19 because we'll refer to this passage a couple of times this morning. While we're turning there, uh, I'm reminded of even in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 9, it's uh, where God's talking to Pharaoh. He says, for this cause have I raised thee up. You know, God raised up even this, this wicked ruler, Pharaoh. For this cause have I raised thee up. So John 19 
verses 10 and 11, Pilate says to Jesus, this is Jesus interacting with Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Uh, and, and Pilate says to Jesus, knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. All power, all political authority and power and influence comes ultimately from God. There are different types of governments, empires, democracies, republics. Every type of government has two basic parts. There's the governed and there's governors. There are those with political power and authority and there are those without political power and authority. The responsibility of the governed, of those to whom uh, those who do not have political power in a particular situation is to submit. That's verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance. The responsibility of the governors, on the other hand, is also here in, uh, in 1 Peter. It says, the purpose is the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. This is very clearly outlined again in Romans 13. I'm going to read in Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. It says, rulers... These rulers we were just told are ordained of God. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he, the ruler, he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath, upon him that doeth evil. The power of the state is the sword. The state is to use the sword rightly to punish evil and to praise good. The rulers here described in Romans 13 are not a terror to good works, they're a terror to evil works. In 1 Peter 2, where our text, the, the kings and the governors are sent for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So the principle here is that those wielding some form of political power are to use that power as a double-edged sword to punish evil and to praise good. Now we're using these words evil and good. We have to think about how to define those. What standard are we using to define what is evil and what is good? If we determine evil and good maybe democratically, then abortion is a moral good in the state of Ohio now, because last Tuesday, that's what the state of Ohio democratically decided. If we determine evil and good culturally, then we have all sorts of interesting results. Maybe 500 years ago in South America, we could have culturally acceptable human sacrifice as a moral good. Uh, maybe 80 years ago in Germany, we could have the rounding up of Jews into concentration camps as a moral good. That's where we get if we determine good and evil culturally. But that's not the kind of good and evil Peter has in mind. Because Peter has in mind an ultimate standard of good and evil that's found in God's revealed will. It's an unchanging standard. And that is the standard by which governors are to punish evil and praise good. And it's the standard by which they will be judged. God's word. 
Now, when we talk about submitting to the form of government, this can look different depending on where we live. Some here in our congregation do quite literally bear the sword to punish evil and praise good. We have several police officers that attend citizens here. These individuals use the force of the state to enforce law. These individuals have the obligation to use that force rightly. The sword must be used not as a terror to good works, but to evil, as defined biblically. But we have an interesting feature in our form of government to which we are submit that was not present in a real way in Peter's day. See, in Peter's day, roles were more distinct. There were people who had political authority and there were people who most emphatically did not. This is the Roman Empire, not the Roman Republic. Elections were not even held, and if they were, it wasn't meaningful. But in our system of government, it's famously, what is it? Of the people, by the people. What's the last one? For the people. Of the people, by the people, for the people. It's very unusual. It's a very unusual form of government. Because in this form of government, every citizen of certain age has this little fragment of political power that is given to us called the vote. And this little fragment of political power, like anything else, like any other resource we have, our money, our time must be stewarded wisely. Last week, we had the opportunity to do this, and all of us did one of three things with this resource. We voted yes, we voted no, or we stayed home. So I wanna ask you, did you steward the political resource that you've been given wisely? How do you know, how can you determine if you stewarded it wisely? Well, this was given to you. Did you use it to punish evil and praise good? Did you vote in a way that most effectively implements the Bible's definition of evil and good in our society? Remember, we're gonna be held accountable as stewards for the opportunities and the resources God's given us. God, the, the Bible does not talk positively of people that bury their potential influence in the ground. The parable of the talents says that we should use the resources that God's given us uh, for good. Issues one and two were very big issues. Abortion, recreational marijuana, these things are things that God's word discusses and describes. Abortion is a great moral wrong. The fact that the state of Ohio democratically decided that abortion should be enshrined in the constitution is a great shame to the state. We're part of a very small group of states that's done this. But we had our opportunity to vote. We hope we did it wisely. If you didn't, there is forgiveness. But we still have to, to think about this resource wisely. There's a Bible commentator named C.E.B. Cranfield. And I thought this was very helpful. He said, in New Testament times, the state was authoritarian. The ruler was an absolute ruler. And the sole duty of the citizen was to render absolute obedience and pay taxes. Under these conditions, the keynote was bound to be subjection to the state. 
But in a democratic state, the keynote must not be subjection, but cooperation. Now, he's not saying we don't submit. He's saying that the way in which we submit is different because the form of government is different. In a democratic state, the keynote must be subject, not be subjection, but cooperation. For the duty of the citizen is not only to submit to be ruled, but to take a necessary share in ruling. Hence, if the Christian is to fulfill his duty to the state, he must take part in its government. He must also take his part in local government and in the life of the trade union or association connected with his trade, craft, or profession. It's tragic that so few Christians really fulfill their obligation to the state and the society in which they live. So this is submission to the form of government. These are things to think about. I want to move on to submission to the exercise of authority. Once decisions have been made, once laws have been passed, then we have to place ourselves in submission to those laws. In our system, we generally have two primary sources of law. There's the federal system and there's a the state system. And in each of those systems, there's generally speaking, three different levels, types of law. At the top, there's a constitution. We've got the constitution of the United States. It establishes our form of government. There's three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. Next layer down from the Constitution is there's something called statutes. These are written by the legislature and signed into law by the president. And then the next level down are regulations. And these regulations are made by federal agencies, unelected officials, to implement the statutes that the Congress passes. These agencies, there's, there's so many of them. Uh, some of them are familiar. The Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, the Government Accountability Office, so it must be understaffed organization, the, the Commission for the Implementation of Textile Agreements, uh, and then, the, of course, the Interagency Committee for the Management of Noxious and Exotic Weeds. Um, obviously, the list goes on and on. To get a scale of how many laws we're dealing with in this culture, the, in 1982, it was a long time ago, but in 1982, the Justice Department attempted to determine the total number of federal criminal laws. Because surprisingly, no one knows this. Surprisingly, no one knows how many statutes are on the books. But they said, well, let's just limit it to criminal laws. How many criminal laws are there? After two years, they gave up. Ronald Gaynor, the man leading the project, he characterized the project this way. You will have died and been resurrected three times and still not have an answer to this question. So we don't know how many laws are out there. There's all different types of laws. How many of these are we to submit to? Well, I saved one of the most difficult words in the passage for last here. It's in verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Every ordinance. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to decide which laws are wise, which laws are just. Um, we don't get to play games about the source of the law. We can't say, oh, well, Peter's talking about laws that come from a king. We don't have a monarchy. We're a totally different system. No. Um, he's, he uses these, these as just examples of potential types of people implementing ordinances of man. We're to submit to every ordinance of man, whether it comes from a king, a legislature, a federal agency, the interagency committee for the management of noxious and exotic weeds. We have to submit to every ordinance of man. If a legitimate governing authority establishes a rule for behavior in civil society, then the Christian's position is submission to that rule. Um, one commentator put it this way. This is the basic idea. The idea here is that you can look a king or a governor or an IRS agent in the eye and say, I submit to you. I honor you, not for your sake. I honor you for God's sake. I honor you because God owns you 
and rules over you and has sovereignly raised you up for a limited season and given you the leadership that you have. For his sake and for his glory and because of his rightful authority over you, I honor you. Now I want to talk about the purpose of submission. We talked about the submission in general and then the, we talked about the object of submission to what are we to submit. Now what's the purpose? Peter says here, that ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. A lot of questions popping into your head. Uh, who are these foolish men? What is it that they're saying that's ignorant? And how in the world does our obedience to these laws put their ignorance to silence? These foolish men are just foolish here just means without knowledge. Uh, this is going back to verse 12, the Gentiles, the unbelievers surrounding. Um, they're accusing the brethren of, of evil doing. Um, says here that in Acts 17, 6 through 7, this is an example of something that, that was happening in the first century. Um, unbelievers accused Jason of insurrection. They said, these, these Christians, these have turned the world upside down, that have turned the world upside down, are come hither also. These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus. The, the early Christians were accused of insurrection, of subversion. And this charge, in a way, you can understand where it comes from. Because Peter says here, in verse 16, we obey as free. As free. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We're simply sojourners and pilgrims here. People may look at us and our priorities and see how different they are from the surrounding culture's priorities. And they might rightly think that our priorities are a little out of step. We're obviously out of place here, much as... I, with my American tastes and ad appetites and preferences, if I were to move to Bangladesh, I would be obviously out of place. So my heavenly desires and appetites and tastes and priorities should make me obviously out of place here. This can show itself in many ways. It shows itself in the way I'm spending my time. Even this morning, we gather together on the Lord's Day to be with one another. We gather with other believers throughout the week. It can show itself in how we spend our money. Um, we should be generous to Christian causes, we should follow biblical principles of saving and avoid the culturally acceptable shackles of debt. It can show itself in the way we raise our children, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and not according to what might be popular in the world. And this charge makes a special sense when you consider the man on which our faith stands. When I was considering this topic, I was drawn again and again to the example of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. And I'm going to read some of this interaction for us now. In John, beginning in John chapter 18, I told you to put your finger in 19, but I'm going to read a little bit in 18 here. In verse 33, Pilate asks Jesus, Jesus is on trial before him. The Jews have brought Jesus before Pilate and he says, art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, 
that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Peter saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Skipping down to verse 1 of chapter 19, after Pilate has found in him no fault at all, then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee, and I have the power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. On trial for insurrection, Jesus explained that his kingdom was not of this world. Because the aim of Christ's kingdom is not primarily political conquest, but bearing witness unto the truth. Christ's statement made Pilate wonder aloud, what is truth? But despite finding in him no fault at all, Pilate fashioned a sign with a charge of insurrection on it and affixed it to the cross on which Jesus hung. Christ was innocent of the charge against him, but ultimately all of us have rebelled. We've not lived 
in perfect submission to the governing authorities. And the problem with that is that it violates God's law for us. And it's just one of the many ways in which we've sinned. Perhaps you struggle with this command to submit because of bitterness and rebellion in your heart toward authority. That's sin. Perhaps you've wielded some measure of authority in a way that does not punish evil and praise good. That is sin. These sins just place us in the category of all humans because we know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned by violating God's revealed will in one way or another. So we all have this sin problem because we've all sinned. And unless we figure out a way to get rid of the sin, unless we find a way to have our sins forgiven, then we won't be able to see God. We won't have eternal life. Instead, we will enter eternal death because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin, the just reward for sin is death. But to make our problem worse, the God we're trying to see is a righteous God, a just God, and he can't forgive sin in a vacuum. He can't just say, I forgive. Sin must be punished for God's justice to be maintained, and sin will be punished. God punishes sins in one of two ways. Option one is to accept the punishment yourself. This option requires you to suffer an eternity in hell because your sin is, an against, is against an infinite God, and it would take a finite creature, eternity, to accept the penalty for offending infinite God. Option two is that your sin was punished in Jesus on the cross because he is infinite God made flesh and was able to absorb the wrath of infinite God in finite time on the cross. Jesus was nailed on the cross next to the false charge of insurrection. He didn't rebel against authorities, but we have. And this charge of insurrection of which we're guilty and he is not stands in for all the other sins we've committed. Imagine the sign said adulterer, blasphemer, murderer, thief. Colossians 2.14 says that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this allows God to forgive our sin. Romans 3.26 says, he, Paul is declaring his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. God can be just because our sins were punished, but he can also be the justifier because our sins were punished in Christ. When all was done, Christ hung there, rejected by humanity, suspended above earth on a cross, and on that cross, he received the wrath of God against our sin. He cried out in the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when infinite God made flesh, had absorbed the wrath of infinite God against sin, when he finished his mission on earth to save sinners, he cried out, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And because his sacrifice was accepted, Death had no claim on him. The grave couldn't hold him. And three days later, he rose as the first fruits of the resurrection. 
So regardless of what position we take on issue one and issue two, and regardless of what position we take on, on when to submit to government and when not to, really the most important question to ask is how do we choose this second option where the sins get punished in Jesus and not in ourselves? Romans 10, 9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We turn to the cross and we receive the forgiveness of sins that he offers. You know, Peter said this when he was accused of subversion. He was brought before Jewish authorities for, pre- for preaching in the temple. Peter said, effectively, I'm not going to obey the laws against preaching in the temple because in verse 29 of Acts 5, he says, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That forgiveness of sins is ours if we only turn and look at Jesus and embrace him as our Lord and Savior. All this is to say that we shouldn't be surprised when foolish men say ignorant things about us. Our faith rests on a man crucified on false charges. How is it that our obedience puts to silence this ignorance? Peter tells us to submit because by nature we're free. We're citizens of another kingdom, but that freedom opens us up to the charge that we're using it as a cloak for unrighteousness. We say we have liberty just so that we can hide our our nefarious and subversive intentions. How can we silence these accusations? We silence it through good works. And so Peter says, says, so that when the Gentiles see your good works, they'll glorify God, which is in heaven. Let your light so shine before men. They may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. It's just like Daniel in in Daniel chapter six, the, the princes of Babylon want to put him out of favor with the king of Babylon, Darius. And so they try to come up with a plan. Daniel 6, 4 says uh, they sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They were find, trying to find some way that he violated the law so that they could come, come against him. It says that they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. He submitted himself to Babylon which wasn't a Christian nation. He submitted himself to this evil empire. The men said that they gave up trying to find a place that he violated the law. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So they knew that because he obeyed general law, they would have to come up with some law that would cause him to violate his conscience. And that's how we put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We obey. We're the best citizens. We're the best members of trade organizations. We're the best uh, uh, subjects, regardless of what system of government we are in, whether it's something desirable or undesirable. And so when they accuse us of evildoers, they'll be put to silence. But I want to touch briefly on the scope of our obedience, because the scope is mentioned here in verse 13. It says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. But it doesn't stop there. It says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake means on his behalf or in his stead. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims. This gets to the heart of the third commandment, Exodus 20, verse seven. It says, 
Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. I think sometimes when we think of this commandment, you might think of a video you've seen of Ray Comfort in the way of the master evangelism. He'll usually come up to somebody and say, have you ever you know, taken God's name in vain? Have you ever used God's name as a cuss word? And people will say yes, and he's like, oh, that's blasphemy, which is an application of the third commandment. But I don't think that's the primary meaning of the third commandment at all. When the third commandment says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, what it means is you're not to take God's name on yourself as a banner. You're not to say, I'm identified with Yahweh. I'm identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and then perform vain actions underneath of that banner. I don't think that the heart of the third commandment is verbal blasphemy, but behavioral blasphemy. It forbids taking his name as one might take a banner, perform vain actions. We call ourselves Christians. And so when we act in a way that is despicable, we bring shame on his name. We're taking his name on us in vain. There are times when it is not possible to submit to a man-made ordinance for the Lord's sake. That's what this means. We're to submit for the Lord's sake. We cannot obey a law that requires us to perform an evil act for the Lord's sake. We cannot obey a law that requires us to abstain from a good act for the Lord's sake. There are a spectrum of laws. There are so many nuances here that I'd love to get into. But let's consider a couple of simple examples. Consider a law that requires us to do something forbidden by God. As a biblical example, we can think back just a few weeks ago to the example of the righteous Hebrew midwives. Pharaoh said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. That is a law, that is an edict, that's an ordinance of man that would have required the Hebrew midwives to violate the revealed will of God and to kill innocent children. The Hebrew midwives did not obey. Instead, it says, verse 17 of Exodus 1, they saved the men children alive. And then on top of that, they deceived Pharaoh because he said, why have you done this and saved the men children alive? And they said, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives are coming unto them. And for this defiance of the evil Egyptian empire, God rewarded these women greatly. We cannot obey, for the Lord's sake, an evil law. But there's another type of way that this law might show up, another type of law that we might need to disobey, and that's a law that forbids something that God requires. And this is the type of law that, that the, the princes came up with in Babylon. Because remember, they were trying to figure out some way that they could catch Daniel. There wasn't a law on the books that they catch him with, so they got the king to pass another law. Um, they, they appealed to the king's vanity. They said, they said oh, O king, uh, in verse 7 of Daniel chapter 6, says, uh, Whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. So prayer was forbidden for 30 days. For 30 days. Have you ever gone without praying for 30 days? But Daniel didn't, because every day, it says, every day, listen to what he did. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, now there's now law in place, no praying to anyone for 30 days, except for the king. When Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And here's the key part of the verse. As he did aforetime. 
See, Daniel had a practice that the, the, these princes wrote a law to forbid. They knew that he prayed three times a day with his window open toward Jerusalem on his knees. They forbid that. And what did he do? He did the same thing that he'd always done. And Daniel stands as an example of a couple of things. He stands as an example that he didn't develop a new practice just to defy the law. He didn't start doing something just to make a problem. But notice that he didn't alter his custom to make his defiance any less noticeable. Every day he was accustomed to praying with his windows open on his knees three times a day. None of those things are required in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say you have to pray three times a day. It doesn't say you have to pray with your window open. It doesn't say you have to pray in a very physically obvious position on your knees. Um, couldn't he have just closed his window? Nobody would have known. Couldn't he have just closed his eyes and prayed in his head? Maybe opened his eyes, prayed in his head. Could he have done that? I think Daniel stands as an example that we need not, in fact, I think we should not alter our piety in response to unrighteous government overreach. I'm sure all of our minds are going back to what we saw happen in 2020 in response to um, restrictions that became increasingly obvious to be overreach. Well, you can still gather, just not in this particular way. That was a surprising thing. First time any of us have ever seen that in our lifetimes. But we need to think about which aspects of our piety we'd be willing to alter and when and under what conditions we need to think about it because it probably won't be the last time we see that in our lifetimes, although it was the first. Daniel's an example to consider, but in summary, our default posture toward every ordinance of man, every ordinance should be submission. That's our default posture. We shouldn't go in with rebellious hearts. We shouldn't look for ways and technicalities to disobey. We submit because God has ordained government for our good and because that posture leads to the flourishing of this whole institution. When the two halves work together, when the, the governing half is doing things to punish evil and praise good, and when the governed half is submitting, that institution flourishes. And that should be our goal. That should be what we want. That's why we're submitting. Not because we're obligated, not because we're obligated to these earthly laws by nature. We're free by nature. We're citizens of heaven. But because we should want good for ourselves and our fellow man on this earth, and we're submitting because God tells us to. We're submitting, again, because it silences the ignorance of foolish men. It leads to men seeing our good works and glorifying our Father who is in heaven. When we silence all their objections, maybe they'll consider. Maybe there's something to this Christianity, this way. We defy ordinances of man only when we must do so for the Lord's sake. If obedience would be taking the Lord's name in vain, then we must defy. We, that occurs when we're asked to violate God's reveal in some way, other by an either by an act of omission, not doing something we should, or commission, doing something we shouldn't. Our final verse here in, in 1 Peter 2, it's a summary statement of what we've been thinking about for quite a while in 1 Peter. He says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, keep these things in their proper place. We can be faithful no matter where God's called us. We can be faithful in a very righteous nation, um, or a nation that claims righteousness. Consider the prophets in, in, in Jerusalem and in, in, in Israel. And that was a nation that claimed Yahweh as God. 
Uh, we could be faithful in an unrighteous nation. Daniel's described as being faithful because he obeyed the laws of Babylon. Consider Paul in Rome availing himself of the privileges of a citizen. Uh, we should obey wherever we can. Like Paul says, we should, we should as much as possible live at peace with all men. And we should have this defiance. We should defy government only when necessary for the Lord's sake. Not because we think the law is unwise or unjust, but if we must and we have no other option, um, then we disobey for the Lord's sake. But our posture is submission. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and some of these thoughts we've been able to have together. I pray that you'd help us think through these issues as they're very difficult to think through. I pray that you'd help us to have simplicity of thought and to be able to have submissive hearts and submissive behavior. I pray that our submission would lead to many ignorant mouths being silenced and people ultimately coming to a knowledge of the truth. Father, I pray that we'd be diligent to pray for our authorities. Um, we know that you desire the salvation of all men. And I pray that you would bring salvation to those among our leaders who do not know you. Father, I pray that you would help us to look to these examples of the Hebrew midwives, of, of Daniel, many others, of the apostles, of Jesus himself, and, and learn and Father, ultimately, when we fail in these places, I pray that you'd help us to look to the cross and see that um, our sins are paid for there and help us out of the new life we find in Christ, live to righteousness, including righteousness in this civil sphere. In Christ's name I pray, amen.